We have been inundated with so many messages in society that it takes it takes work our entire lifetime to like really undo that. Welcome to the High Performance Health Podcast with your host, Angela Foster. The show where we talk about everything you need to break through limits and achieve a high performance mind, body and lifestyle. Hi friends, I am so excited. Today is our 200th episode here on the High Performance Health Podcast. And I am so grateful to all you lovely listeners. I couldn't have done it without you. Thank you so much for listening and supporting the show. It's been such an incredible journey and I can't quite believe we've got to 200 episodes. And to celebrate, I have an amazing guest for you today. My guest is Dr. Jolene Brighton. Dr. Jolene is a women's hormone expert and prominent leader in women's medicine. We actually met at the Health Optimization Summit in London last May. It was wonderful to meet Dr. Jolene. She's absolutely lovely and so super knowledgeable about everything to do with hormones. I loved her first book, Beyond the Pill. It's absolutely brilliant if you haven't read it. And she has a new book, which you can pre-order, that is coming out in April next year called Is This Normal? Judgment-free straight talk about your body. And that's exactly what we dive into in this week's episode. Everything to do with sex, hormones, periods, and everything else that you've ever wanted to know about hormones. So without further delay, let me introduce you now to the lovely Dr. Jolene Brighton. Imagine there was a way that you could improve the health of your skin and hair and your brain all at the same time in one deliciously tasting chocolatey drink. Oh my goodness, I'm so excited. Collagenius has landed in the UK. Why am I so excited by this? Because it contains really concentrated sources of lion's mane, chaga and cordyceps. You probably heard that lion's mane can help with BDNF. BDNF is shown, it's like miracle growth for your brain, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, and it's been shown to decline with age. So super important that we look after that if we want to look after our smarts. And in Collagenius, each dose contains two and a half grams, 50 to one of lion's mane. That's equal to 200 grams of ground mushrooms. It's also got the equivalent of 300 grams of ground chaga, which is a natural antioxidant to support your immune system and can also help to lower blood sugar and cholesterol and cordyceps equal to about 400 grams of ground mushrooms. Uh, Cordyceps is amazing for improving exercise performance. Uh, It has anti-aging qualities, anti-inflammatory and helps to improve heart health and collagen, which can improve the health of your skin, relieve joint pain, promote heart health, boost your muscle mass, strengthen your hair and nails and also prevent bone loss all in one super delicious chocolatey flavored drink. It's my latest mid-morning drink that I'm having and I'm absolutely loving it. Now, they've got limited stock here in the UK. So if you head over to bioptimizers.uk forward slash Angela and enter code Angela10, you will get 10% off Collagenius. Um, that's Angela, sorry, it's bioptimizers.uk forward slash Angela if you're in the UK. And if you're anywhere else in the world, go to bioptimizers.com forward slash Angela and just enter code Angela10 at checkout and you too can upgrade your brain and have a silky smooth lustrous hair and glowing skin all at the same time.
So, Dr. Jolin, it is so amazing to have you on the show. We met back in London in May. I know it's taken us a little bit of time to get this in the calendar. I've been really looking forward to it. So welcome to the show. Yes, I'm so glad that we made this happen, especially after connecting uh, for people who don't know, there's an awesome uh, health optimization summit in London that we got to connect at. You were speaking um, and then we also had a panel together. It was a good time. Yeah, it was. It was really fun and it was nice to meet you in person. Um, so I'm really excited. You obviously have a new book coming out next year. Is this normal? Uh, mm-hmm. I have your book here, Beyond the Pearl, which I just think is a brilliant book. So I can't wait for the next one. Um, I guess a really good place to start is you're different to most doctors, right? Most medical doctors <laughs> seem to prescribe the pill for anything and everything. What kind of inspired you to write this and go down this whole rabbit hole of how the pill really impacts women? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's a two-part in that, I have my personal story and my personal journey with the pill, which I talk about in Beyond the Pill, which was like amazing because like those like horrifically over a week long periods went away, uh, but also not so immediate amazing because the nonstop yeast infections could never be cleared. But, you know, I had that journey. I think um, just about everyone has a pill story. Every time um, my book comes up and I'm at a party or a conference, people are like, let me tell you my pill story. And it was really my patients who inspired this because so many of them came to me and I quite frankly got fatigued being the doctor who was diagnosing PCOS in like the 38 year old female who was now trying to get pregnant or the one to discover that she'd actually been struggling with hypothyroidism all along. And these different reasons that women are put on the pill without any question of why. And that's what it really comes down to is, do I want access for the pill? Do I want women to have the option? Do I want to support women on the pill? Absolutely. And beyond the pill does that. And at the same time, I want to give them solutions beyond the pill, because I know you can go to any doctor and you can be offered a birth control pill. Like it's a, you know, fill in the blank, whatever the hormone like symptom or down there issue, we've got the pill. Even sometimes when women are like, well, I'd like to get pregnant. And the doctor's like, well, just go on the pill because that's going to reset your cycle so that you can get pregnant. <laughs> we don't actually don't have any evidence of that. <laughs> but, you know, I think it's really frustrating as a patient, as a woman, but also as a doctor to see how many women are prescribed the pill for symptoms that have a cause and they're given no other solutions. And they're told things like, you know, just go on the pill. And if you want to have a baby, then we'll deal with it later down the line. Except that all of these women are also told, as soon as you come off the pill, you'll be able to get pregnant immediately. And sure, if you're putting a 14-year-old on the pill, that could be true. But when we consider that the pill is also used to delay fertility and to control our reproductive health that some women are waiting decades and in that decades time there are these conditions that are developing that are brewing that nobody has actually addressed and so this book beyond the pill is all about really helping you make the best decision for yourself understanding the pros and cons of the pill understanding what your other options are and helping you make that decision that you really feel like is your own not a doctor telling you you have to do this because I told you so. Mm, so really empowering women and also teenagers, right? Because as you were saying there, and that's very fim- you know similar to what happened to me, is I think I'd only started my periods like a year before and they were so disruptive. And mm-hmm. you know it turned out I had PCOS, but they... Um, it was almost immediate. Let's just put you on the pill because we're worried about your bone density. That was, that was what I was yeah. told um, yeah. very quickly. And then here we are decades later being like, 
actually, we don't think it protects your bones like we once did because we never had really great evidence in doing that. It was really just a theory. And then rather than, so so can we talk about PCOS? Because that is a really prominent condition that women are past the pill and it delays diagnosis. Um, it, you know, with PCOS and endometriosis, we look at women having delayed diagnosis by decades. Sometimes PCOS women, they take about two to three doctors before they get someone to listen to actually run some tests. And with PCOS, so the name is polycystic ovarian syndrome, but there's not always cysts on the ovaries. And now we know they're not really cysts to begin with. They're actually follicles, um, which is your ovaries trying really, really hard to ovulate. Like they want to perform correctly. They're like, we know what we're supposed to do. And we're trying so hard, but we just can't get there. So there's not always cysts on the ovaries, but what there is, you know, very predominant, it's about 70% of women with PCOS is the estimate have insulin resistance. So what we're looking at is a an, is an endocrine you know condition in the sense that yes we have testosterone issues it's elevated we have issues with progesterone with estrogen with insulin but there's also this metabolic component in that it can be inflammatory we can see cardiovascular disease we can also see mental health health issues it is not just a ovaries uterus female reproductive tract condition and yet it's treated that way. And to me, that's a huge disservice because now what, what doctors do is they put women on the pill and they say, there, I fixed your period. Now you have a regular period. We can talk about the fact how that's like not actually a period from a menstrual cycle in more detail, but what's problematic is that that missing period was the red flag. That was your vital sign throwing a red flag, like a flare, if you will, and saying there is a problem here. And rather than digging deeper and addressing that, you're being put on a medication that masks the symptom. And yes, while it can get the endometrial lining shed, which is really important if you go years without having a period, yet you have estrogen stimulation, you can have endometrial hyperplasia. So it builds up the uterine lining and that could turn into endometrial cancer if that goes on for years. And so, yes, there is that like, okay, it can help with that. And yet it's not helping with all of these other aspects of PCOS. And in addition, because we know that the pill can be inflammatory for some people, that there can be additional cardiovascular issues. This is a population we're not, we haven't really studied to understand what is the long-term cardiometabolic risk of putting them on the pill and not actually addressing all of those components. Do you know, I'm so glad you said that because I, when I was prescribed it at around 15, when I got to uni and I was going to law school, I came off it to see, well, hang on, I've barely had any periods. Am I going to have one? I went a full yeah. 12 months, no periods at all. So it was like, let's just put you back on the pill. Mm-hmm. But then when I later in my late 20s thought about starting a family and I came off the pill and I couldn't get pregnant because I just wasn't having periods. And initially it was exactly as you said. I saw various different doctors. They told me my blood work was fine. Turned out later it wasn't fine. They'd overlooked it. Then I had scans. Yeah. They saw the cysts. And I ended up having to have ovarian drilling. They found out I had um, endometriosis. But it was mm. a long time. In fact, it was my own research that led me down yeah. that rabbit hole of, actually, there's a metabolic component. I'd had blood sugar tests. They were like, your blood sugar's crazy. Did you eat before mm. you had this? You know, all these different things. And I started to try and like research and fix it myself. And all that time, even with the pill use, all these cysts have been building up. 
and and these problems going on in the endometriosis. So it wasn't a solution and it was putting my kind of metabolic health at risk, right? Mm -hmm. And as you say, I wasn't given any guidance on this. And I'm so glad that you raised that because actually on a personal level, I found PCOS takes work, right? I have to work at controlling my blood sugar. I have to work at controlling the acne that I get and things like that. And I did end up with severe postnatal depression actually interestingly and and then clinical depression afterwards and no one really Mm -hmm. tells you about any of these risks from pill use from PCOS from anything else no they really don't and you know what you brought up is so they told your labs are normal so that's a really big problem right because doctors are trained for is it disease or is it not because if it's disease then I know the algorithm of what pill or what you know surgery or what higher level intervention and if it's not then they're like, okay, watch and wait, like, you know, come back, it's normal, whatever, you know, it's, it's not a look of, is it optimal? And what can I do to optimize that? Because optimizing health and optimal levels, that's nutrition and lifestyle. That is not where doctors expertise lie. And actually seeing a new wave of doctors in the United States saying like, well, all doctors are trained in lifestyle medicine. And I'm like, how so? And they're like, well, we tell you to sleep and we tell you like to exercise. And I'm like, do you teach? Do you do you refer? Do you do anything that actually enables the patient to do that? Because you're just saying it is not enough for people. Um, but the other point is, is that there is a lot of resistance, and I'm sure it happens in you know the UK because it's socialized medicine, to actually testing and working up like a 20-something population. Um, something like doing a fasting insulin, a hemoglobin A1C, looking at your cholesterol. If you have a diagnosis of PCOS, we should be looking at all of that, regardless of your age, because we need to get the baseline and we need to track. Like if you are, you know, 20, let's get your baseline because at 30, if things are off, like we can say this was your normal rather than your doctor saying this is the way it always was because you have PCOS kind of situation. But doctors are so reluctant to do that because they're taught again. It's we're waiting for disease, like let's wait for disease and then we can diagnose and then we can treat. My role is to just empower you to never get that diagnosis. Like that is, I'm like, can we just never get that diagnosis? If I've seen that like things, so PCOS, yes, we want that diagnosis, but I don't want to diagnose you with hyperlipidemia, which is elevated cholesterol. I don't want to, you know, have to get you down that, that uh, cardiometabolic pathway and then be like, now, now we need big guns. We need a cardiologist. We've got to come in. I would rather say to you, okay, let's increase the fiber in your diet. Let's make sure that we're getting those healthy fats in. And as you said, TCOS is work. And this is something that I think some of the worst language that ever happens in the PCOS community is when a woman says, I cured myself of PCOS, or I will see sometimes um, non-licensed healthcare practitioners who are allies, um, who I think like like health coaches, amazing. We like there's a need for health coaches because doctors, nurses, I mean PA, they can't do it all. They can't do it all, and patients need that extra support. But sometimes people don't understand that cure is the absence of disease and no longer needing to think about or treat that or do anything with it. Like it's cured, it's done, we are moving on. And when it comes to PCOS, it is a lifelong condition. Mm. So just like I have Hashimoto's, that's a lifelong condition. Did I put my antibodies in remission? Yes. Will I always have to be diligent about my stress, about my sleep, about what I eat? Yes, all of that. And the same is true for PCOS. It is a chronic condition. 
And we found you can put the symptoms in remission. You can make it impossible for your doctor to ever reach the criteria to diagnose it again because of the work and effort that you're putting in. But it will always take work and effort on your part, which I think sometimes feels unfair. Patients are like, that's so unfair. My friends can do X, Y, and Z. And these are usually my younger patients. I'm like, yeah, wait till they're 40 and they can't do X, Y, and Z anymore. And they're regretting, they're looking back in retrospect and being like, I should not have lived that, that hard. Mm-hmm. And that's my nice way of saying it. But like, um, you know, what I call like the metabolic obscenities where you're literally cussing at your body by choices you make, like binge drinking and partying all night. Like, look, I'm not judging or, or finger wagging at anybody, but like consecutive years of that. And that is going to prematurely age your body. Yes, you will see it on your skin, but more importantly, we will see it at a cellular level and there will be dysfunction. And so in some ways, you know, I think a way to look at a chronic condition like PCOS is that you've now been given this opportunity. Your body is going to signal to you faster than other people's bodies that you can become in tune with and you can really start to build that user manual for yourself that helps you thrive. Mm, very much so that's exactly what I found it's almost, I wouldn't say it's a gift but as you say it helps you focus on the areas that need focusing and I have managed to get my cycle very regular but I know that if I stray off course very quickly the acne is going to show me if I put a CGM on me I'm going to see you know different different results um and you know and I found people fortunate. who don't know hmm? the CGM is a continuous glucose continuous monitor, glucose monitor yeah and that is a very awesome tool for PCOS um I just want to say that I love that you're using that and you bring that up I think we're finally seeing doctors starting to accept that for years I mean I've had doctors be like that's frivolous and why are you doing that and you're making your patient neurotic and I'm like but my patient shouldn't have a hypoglycemic response to brown rice that is paired or excuse me, hyperglycemic response, like too much blood sugar um, to brown rice that is paired with protein and fat and all that, right? It shouldn't, it shouldn't happen based on what we know, but they are, and it's what's true mm. for them. And if you can figure that out for yourself, then you can control your blood sugar so much better. And it isn't about becoming neurotic. It's about becoming informed so that every time you make that decision, it's an informed decision. Like, we know there's certain things, I think a lot of us that like, if I eat this or I do this, like, I'm not going to feel great, but you still chose to do it. And that I think is really empowering to say, I know this isn't going to make me feel great, but like, I'm going to really enjoy it in the moment and, and whatever it is, but that you know what you're doing and you're not lost in that. Like, why am I feeling this way? Yeah, that's so true. And I think the more I find like with a CGM, as you say, it's like empowering you to make different choices because you can see in real time rather than kind of mm-hmm. obsessing with it. You can see what's happening. Um, one thing I wanted to you made a really good point there around. And I think and more women need to be aware of this. Just sticking with PCOS, PCOS for a moment is it is a lifelong condition. Right. So this is going to continue yeah. beyond menopause. It doesn't just all go away i remember doctor a doctor saying to me recently she was like oh my god for you with pcos and endometriosis by the time you get to menopause it's just going to be a huge relief i feel like i want to see her magic wand like that would be amazing <laughs> i love this I, I love this idea for all of us <laughs> i know um but what was so so beyond that okay women post-menopause that have pcos they still need to pay attention to their metabolic health to their cardiovascular health can you just explain a bit more because i think it's so important that women listening who have this condition realize this you know and this is the part where i say like 
no matter how old you are, please listen, because at some point you will make it to menopause. At least we hope so, because that means you've lived long enough. I get so many times women in their 20s and 30s like, that doesn't apply to me. It's coming, okay? It, It will apply to you at some point. It's a natural progression of our life process. So we've got this lovely hormone called estrogen, which everyone likes to vilify, but it's super protective of our, our cardiovascular health. And in addition, we have progesterone and progesterone is very protective of brain health. So both of these hormones are great for brain health, for bone health, for breast health, for cardiovascular health, so long as they're all in balance. What happens is then as you progress in perimenopause, we see that there, there becomes to arise an ovulatory cycle. So maybe you still have a cycle, but you don't ovulate or you start missing cycles because the ovaries are kind of done. They're over. They're like, yeah, we, we did that. We did the like phase of where, you know, there was baby making potential and now we're moving on from that. And perimenopause can be, I mean, it quite frankly can be a decade of hell for some women, but it doesn't have to be. And this is where what you do in your twenties and thirties can make like such a difference. And there is time to course correct even when you get into perimenopause if you start having significant symptoms. But as that progesterone declines, we will start to see anxiety come up, sleep gets disrupted. Um, as I prevent, presented at the Health Optimization Summit, and in my new book, Is This Normal? I have like a whole diagram and I go through this whole thing like, if you are not sleeping, here is how your insulin is going to rise and your ovaries are going to become even more dysfunctional and your inflammation is going to increase. So just by way of progesterone not being available, what's metabolites to stimulate and help GABA in the brain so that we not just fall asleep, but we stay asleep. That's the staying asleep part and the getting the deep restorative sleep that can be really problematic. That sleep disruption will compound the already, you know, train that is headed towards cardiometabolic issues. So you know, we see with men, you know, them having cardiovascular issues in their 40s, 50s, women, um, we're matched in terms of our risk once we go through menopause, and we no longer have these hormones. And as we talk about, you know, one thing I think is really important that we didn't um, talk about is that with PCOS, you're not ovulating regularly. So it can be lack of ovulation, or it's like in spurts. So maybe you're having a period every four to six months kind of thing. That is one of the criteria for diagnosing PCOS. What's interesting that I found in the research um, is that your libido can really suffer. So there's been research uh, done looking at sexual desire, sexual pleasure. Like, do you actually enjoy sex? Do you want to have sex? And it is tied in to ovulation. And it's interesting because they corrected for other things and they found with PCOS, if you're not ovulating, that can negatively impact your sex life. So we get into perimenopause. Now we're not ovulating regularly. That can affect our sex life. Plus, like we can have weight gain, all these other issues coming up. And then we enter into menopause. Now we no longer ovulate. We have vaginal dryness um, coming up. And let's just like not overlook the fact that if you have cardiometabolic issues, your blood vessels are impacted, that's going to impact blood flow down there. And there is actual research looking at how blood sugar dysregulation and cardiovascular issues. Now, let me say, there's plenty of research. If you have a penis, they have done plethora of research. If you have a clitoris, a little bit less, but there is research showing the same impact, which makes sense because these are the same tissues, the, the clitoris and the penis. They started out the same in utero, and it's just a matter of having a Y chromosome and some hormones come through, testosterone namely that differentiates all of that. 
Um, so I bring this up because in medicine, women's sexual health is not prioritized, but we know that women's sexual health, I mean, it's an aspect of health. The World Health Organization actually is like, we need to have a pleasure mission because that's how important sexual health is. And this is not only often overlooked in all women's health, but when you get to menopause and you start having pain with sex and you're having these issues, if, you, if you're a man and you start having sexual dysfunction, they're like, let's work you up, make sure you don't have cardiovascular issues. If you're a woman, they're like, have some wine, get some lube, lay there. It'll, it'll work itself out kind of situation. Drugs don't work so well on us because we, um, and I get into this in the, is this normal? Just our, our sexual desire, what people call libido is so complex that you can't really make a drug that's going to be a complete game changer. But at the same time, like your menstrual cycle and like your period was a sign in your fertile years that there could be a problem, your sexual health and your lack of desire, your um, inability to orgasm, pain with sex, all of these kinds of things at every point in your life can be a sign that there's an issue. And certainly in the perimenopause and menopausal phase, these could point to cardiovascular issues. And what do you suggest for women that are struggling with that? Because as you say, right, if there's reduced blood flow in one area, it's happening in other areas, it should be alarm bells ringing. Um, What's the best way around this? Like, do you think that um, also when we're looking at um, bioidentical hormone therapy, do you think that women can? I mean, years ago, we transitioned through menopause. We didn't have anything. Right. Mm -hmm. Do you think that women can make that transition? Or do you think that in the majority, if not all cases, women are going to need some support? Have things changed because there's so many toxins? that we're exposed to estrogen disruption all these different things i'm just curious as to your view around seeing a woman make that transmission transition in the most healthy way so there was once upon a time uh decades ago where i was a new doctor and uh, you know being you know being just in healthcare and everything i was like i wouldn't use bioidenticals and i will just transition naturally the amount of um cognitive decline that we see in women i have to say like sexual health is important um you know the bone health is important all of these things are important what's really scares me this is personally what i want to avoid is becoming that 66 percent that is women who have dementia and what we see is that it is linked to our hormones and so with that in mind is it possible to transition um, into menopause, not use hormones, um, and live, you know, live your life and be happy. Yeah. In a lot of cases, you know, you can, but when we're talking about optimization and we're talking about quality of life, I just don't want to be in my eighties wishing that in my fifties, I would use some hormone replacement therapy so that I could maintain my memories, um, my personality, still know who my children are. Like I'm getting kind of emotional here, but it's those kinds of things that we're not talking about. Um, What we see a lot. um, So one, there's a lot of really old research that wasn't done so well um, that scared everybody away from bioidentical hormones and acted like, okay, you're all going to get cancer or, um, you know, you're, it's, it's, you know, that's, I think the biggest scare is that everyone's going to get cancer. And, you know, sometimes when we look at these studies, like when they're using nurses, 
Well, when you use people who don't have consistent sleep, they're already at higher risk of cancer because of their melatonin disruption. Another reason, like I could talk about like why we should get them sleep. Um, and people are always like, oh, sleep, that's nothing new. I'm like, yeah, and yet it's so, so vital. So with that, um, what we, like, what I think that there, there's been a little bit of pushback for some women, you know, who deem themselves feminists, who have really viewed bioidenticals as like trying to hold on to youth or anti-aging as if anti-aging is a bad thing. Um, I think the way that word gets used, it's not like we're trying to never age. I think it's that we are trying to sustainably age, like not rapidly age. And you're right. There's a lot of different things in the environment. Um, when, so like Dale Bremison, who does brilliant, he's a doctor, does brilliant research in Alzheimer's. When you hear functional medicine physicians who focus in neurology or even, you know, really in chronic disease, when we talk about chronic disease, there's this analogy of basically having like a sieve or like a colander, right? Something that you wash your vegetables in and you've got all these holes in it. That's what we want to go in and patch with chronic disease. That's what we want to patch with Alzheimer's and these kinds of things. And there might be 40 holes and you get to like 30 and you're way better off because of it. Because let's face it, there's a lot you cannot control. We cannot control these plastics that now persist, these chemicals that now persist are ubiquitous in our environment. You know, those same chemicals brought to you by doctors who said, don't worry about it because there's no research to show they're bad. And now here I am as a grown adult being like, wow, why do we have to keep doing dumb? Why do we have to keep waiting until things are so bad to finally like say, oh yeah, maybe we should be cautious about it. So that's just all to say that bioidentical hormones are not going to be everything. I will say do have patients that feel like they're everything because they have been doing all the diet, the lifestyle, like they feel like they've been doing everything right. And then the bioidenticals are really like, you know, that one key that turns the lock and opens the door for what they were trying to achieve. But, you know, I don't want to also be the person who's like, just everybody bioidenticals and you'll feel so amazing because again, there are all these other holes, right? All these other aspects that we have to be looking at as well. And certainly when it comes to, so we were talking about like sexual health and, um, you know, I, I alluded to pain with sex. Vaginal atrophy is something that isn't just going to affect your sex life. So there's thinning of the tissue, it becomes friable. Patients who they just, they, they go to the bathroom, they wipe and there's blood. Because they can wipe with tissue with the tissue with wow. tissue paper because the tissue is just that sensitive. It becomes very inflamed. Now you have somebody who can't sit, who can't walk. I want anyone, if you've ever had a yeast infection, just to imagine that being every day for the rest of your life. Like that what really pisses me off about that is that there's this dismissal as if like, that's not a big deal. Do you know how distracted that leaves that woman? Do you know how much energy that is taking to be in that discomfort? And that means she's not showing up for her community, her friends, her family, or giving her gifts to this world in the way that she could be, because now she's struggling with something that she shouldn't even have to struggle with. And then that's not to mention that like, maybe she doesn't film um, you know, what society has told women, right? We're supposed to be these sexual creatures, but like only in the right context kind of thing. But like, no matter how um, progressive we think we are, we have been inundated with so many messages in society that it takes, it takes work our entire lifetime to like really undo that. So there's the psychological aspect of all of that. And then as we were talking about, 
with like uh, clitoral blood flow, one of the best things we can do is use it. Um, we talk about use it or lose it with muscles all the time. It's the same way with your clitoris and your orgasms. If you're not having that stimulation and using it regularly, you can lose the ability to orgasm. You can develop clitoral atrophy. Um, it's, there's like this whole movement that's anti-masturbation. Um, it's really on the rise out there. And yet this is something we've got like FDA approved devices for helping women maintain clitoral health because it is, it's a very important tissue. Like down there altogether is a very important issue. And sometimes it is masturbation is the prescription that we're writing depending, like if this woman's not in a partnership, why should she like have to risk vaginal uh, issues? Why should we have to risk, you know, um, issues with the clitoris because somebody else is telling you that like masturbation is wrong. Like I'm like, I'm literally writing you a prescription for this because it's important. And as we talked about, uh, you know, so if it is a cardiometabolic issue, we want to get that worked up. We've got to get labs. I, we can't like, we can't just go based off of like, you, you can't see your heart health. I wish you could. Um, you can't see it that easily. So we want to be looking, like I said, the fasting insulin, the hemoglobin A1C, you may want to do continuous glucose monitoring. We want to look at the HSCRP, which is a highly sensitive C-reactive protein to see where things at. You may need advanced testing beyond a lipid panel um, to look at like, what are these, what are these other risk factors um, that you have? And, you know, it is something that um, certainly as you get into your perimenopausal years, which is, you know, technically starts at age 35, you get regular EKGs and, you know, talking to your doctor about like, should I have an echocardiogram and um, getting, you know, these tests, because the reality is, is that when, you know, uh, who else was on the panel with us was Dr. Amy Killen. And I'm reminded of a story recently where her best friend had a heart attack and she was like, she was a yoga teacher. She did. She was like picture of health and she had a heart attack. And, you know, Amy in her post that she was sharing on Instagram said like, get your EKG, get all of that. I'm like, yes, me annually getting all of that stuff because I'm like, I would rather see what's coming on the road ahead and take a detour, then arrive at the destination and look back and say, damn it, it was there on the map the whole time. Mm. It's scary, isn't it, that these tests are not run kind of routinely that often as well. You see, yeah. hear it. I, I had a, a friend, his uh, sister, very recently in her, similar in her early fifties, super healthy, massive on walking, doesn't walk, doesn't drink, exercises regularly, eats really healthy. All of a sudden, gets a headache, gets prescribed a migraine pill, but instead, actually, she has a double block up to the brain. And now she so can't I speak, she can't this. recognize anyone, nothing. And it's yeah, frightening. I, it is, it's not only frightening, it's so frustrating because I talk about this in my book, Is This Normal? The um, rate, I wish I, wish I, I hope it a whole chapter, honestly, on gaslighting women, but the rate at which we're dismissed. And um, it's a whole section where I'm talking about pain with sex and why you have it and how it's not taken seriously. Pain with sex, not taken seriously. They don't even take our headaches seriously, which can be a migraine or could be a stroke. I talk about that and be on the pill as well, because the number of parents I have had write me. So I get all these doctors who are like, don't talk about the stroke risk. Don't talk about quants um, because you'll scare women away from taking the pill. To that, I say bullshit, bullshit that you think you get to withhold information from women and you get to decide what information will scare them or not scare them. They deserve all the information because too often 
these women were never told about the risk of a cot or what to look out for. And I hear from parents who have lost their daughters because their daughter went to the ER, shortness of breath. Well, they had a pulmonary embolism, but they had to go back to the ER several times or they died in their bed because their doctor was like, never even asked about the pill. Same with the stroke. They're told that they have a headache. Well, yeah, they had a headache, but then they started noticing that they were having vision change in one eye and that, you know, when they were talking, they were like something a little bit funny, but because their doctor told them there's nothing wrong and they didn't even ask them about the pill, they just ignore it. And now like they are either disabled or they're dead. And we are not seeing this at like an exponential rate where it's like a crisis. So I want people to understand that it's not like we're like, oh my God, like this is like, you know, something no doctor is talking about and all these people are dying. No, but you know, we're not seeing, it's not like this huge, huge risk. And yet it is a risk. We do need to talk about it. Women do need to be informed, especially because odds are they will encounter a provider who is going to dismiss them and gaslight them and send them on their way. And every woman needs to know if she's on pill or she's on hormone replacement therapy, or if she just doesn't feel things are right, right? That she needs to advocate for herself, but always disclose those hormones to your provider. And um, that is so much easier said than done. Because when you're in the acute state, <clears throat> especially like if you are having the worst headache of your life, like, how do you recall all that? And why is it on you as a patient to have to remember to tell your doctor that you're on the pill because they just didn't ask or to tell your doctor that, hey, I'm scared this might be a clot. I've, you know, this is something that I've had patients who've come to me and they're like, I told my doctor I was scared as a clot. They dismissed me. It wasn't until I pitched this huge fit and I was screaming in there that they were like, fine, you're going to be hysterical about it. It was like, you know, we're still using that word. Um, then we're going to work it up. And lo and behold, I mean, the, and, and it's not just, it's just not, it's not just clots. I mean, there are so many conditions where it isn't until you go there and you are the messy patient that like, you don't want to be, you don't want to be that person, but you lose it, you lose it. And then your doctor listens. And then finally it's like, Oh, lo and behold, it's endometriosis. You have fibroids. Oh, you had ovarian cysts. That was going to be like, probably be ovarian torsion. Like there are just so many cases like this that should just never exist. Like, because it's as simple as just, listening to your patient and we don't have a system that holds space for that no we don't you're right do you think that all these hormonal problems that women are experiencing do you think they've got more prevalent do you think we've got better at diagnosing them like what do you think's going going on there so one we can't ignore that the environment is way worse off than it was i mean even just in our lifetime right um and i think it's really funny that um there are, there's providers out there that can acknowledge the climate change issues and the major issues that we are facing in the environment, but they will not acknowledge that those could actually impact women and impact hormones. But for everybody listening, like just think for a second that like your body, your body can, you know, is, is designed to create life, to grow life. And like, it doesn't always work that way. I do want to acknowledge that, but to do that, to be set up in that way, you have to be super in tune with the environment. So if we get overstressed, if there's a famine, you know, there's different things going on. We receive those signals, our hormones shift, our hormones change. Now put us in an environment where you're getting endocrine disruptors coming in. Um, there is loss of community. There is no more tribe, no more family, no more, you know, there, there's just not that 
Um, I mean, I don't know how it is in the UK. We still see that like um, in Italy and in Spain and other countries, there still is this like there's multi-generational households. There is still this like supportive family unit. We do not see that in the United States. We don't really see that so much in the UK either now. Unfortunately, everyone's like spread out and traveled. Yeah. Yeah. So who does it, who does the burden of holding everything to managing a household to doing all the tasks? Every, it falls on women, even though like and, and people will be like, no, like we fought and feminism and you get to work and all this stuff. And yet, like all of my female colleagues, we just talk about how much we need wives. Like we just need we need to marry. <laughs> like, we need a wife because we still have to do so much of it. And it's not to say that's not, like not a dig on my husband just for everybody listening. It's just there is still this like caretaking and this tendency that we have as women. We're really, really good at it, um, but it doesn't mean we sh- it should all be on us um, to do that. So we we start to look at all of these things, and of course that is all going to negatively impact us. I mean, we there is some research that shows that being in community around ovulation and following ovulation actually helps your progesterone levels. What is that? That is a signal from the environment saying. Should we have a baby? There are people here that will support us, protect us, help us. Like, and these are things that get overlooked all mm. in the name of like independence, right? Independent woman, yes. But also the United States is set up to be like it being, being an individual over a collective, like no matter what, no matter what the cost. And the cost is women's health. That is what the cost has become. So when you look at like, and that's just to say that like, I don't, I think so often in the wellness space, there is a very biopic perspective to be like, it is the food that we're eating and it's environmental toxins, but it is so, so much more than that, that like it, it really takes a team of health practitioners to help an individual and all of that. Now, in terms of like, you know, are we diagnosing it better? I think that we are in an internet age where, um, and I will say there, there's a lot of doctors who are like, women should stay off the internet because they become hypochondriacs and all this stuff. You know, there are so many women who are figuring out that they are autistic or they have ADHD or that they have other issues from the information on the internet. And then they seek out the provider and they can go to them and they can get help. How do people even know when they need to go to a doctor if we're not giving them that information? So I think that there's a lot more. I mean, you have a podcast. What did I have podcasts when I was growing up? Like, what I wouldn't have given to be going through puberty and have podcasts and blog posts and books and all of this information. Like, I had the Dewey Decimal System in the library, looking at stuff from like the seventies that really was just not not it. Um, so there's that piece. And then there is the piece that women are more empowered to take care of themselves, to speak up for themselves. I mean, you know, back in, it was like a 50s, 60s, we had like the Valium age of moms, of moms who were like, this is something's wrong. I can't do it all this life. Like, and, and then we're just like, medicate them, medicate them. Right. Um, and so we're seeing more and more patients. I think that are, very cautious when their doctor offers them the medication that will basically subdue them. They're also being like, wait a minute, I've had enough information now to know to ask more questions. So um, it's not a simple answer. Like I can't give a simple answer. I would love to. And it's always a question like, you know, is it that, you know, the environment has changed so much and that we're seeing more of it or is it, you know, or we're just more educated. Like, what is it? 
And I think it is, we are more educated, but also we, we have seen shifts happening in every aspect of our life that will absolutely throw off the, the endocrine system, throw off your hormones. Yeah, I can agree more. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because when you talk about the stress there and the lack of community, like a lot of women are, and I think there's, you know, I, I tend to cycle my fitness, for example, around my menstrual cycle. And I think there's really good evidence and things for that. But I think a lot of women overlook and they go, oh, well, I shouldn't be doing high intensity work in the luteal phase, completely forgetting that they're so highly stressed. And the psychological yeah. stress is having so much more of an impact on their hormones than the 20 minute hit session that they did in the gym. Because as you mm -hmm. say, particularly as parents, and I think when you're working as a mum, you've got your kids, uh, it's, it's very difficult as well, I think, without being kind of rude to men. I think often they just don't always quite get when your child's under pressure, right? So they're like, it'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> That's the classic yeah. husband's response. It'll be fine, you know, quite often. And actually the kids need your help. So I think as the primary caregiver, we are under so much pressure. Um mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you, oh, sorry, go on. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, to that point with men, because I'm raising two boys, it's also recognizing that like, there are patterns that they've been taught, they have to say it's fine, right? Because they get to have like, anger, and happiness. Well, like, what other emotions do they get to have? So that response, I think it's like, that's really annoying. Okay, I'm just gonna say it. like, it's really annoying. Um, my husband, and I have worked on this for years, because he'll be like, it'll be fine. And I'm like, what will make it fine? I don't know. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. And I'm like, no, it's not fine. Why don't we like actually name what it is and go through that? Um, and I think being a mom, that's been something that like really focusing in on like name the emotions, work through that. So I just want to say to women, like all is not lost. We do have an opportunity to help the future generation be better off than us. And also to recognize that like that it's going to be fine is sometimes a stress response and someone who doesn't know how to name emotions or process it um, or deal with it because they were never taught. And as much pressure as we get in society in, in all of the ways we can go on and on about men also get a pressure of like, you know, and they also get a past, right? They get a pressure and a past and um, it's not serving any of us. It isn't. Do you know what really surprises me? I have two boys and a girl. Is my boys telling me a little while back that at their prep school, they were told, don't cry. Boys shouldn't cry. I was thinking, oh, my God. Like, mm. are we really, in the modern age, actually saying this to our boys that they can't, you know, they've got to suppress yeah. their feelings. I mean, it is, yeah, it's crazy. Um, yeah. So I wanted to ask you, before we kind of go back a little bit to the younger population, when you were talking there about menopause and the impact on cardiometabolic health and also on um, neurological health, what is mm -hmm. the right time? I know a lot of women listening to this will be having in their mind, when is the time that I need to go and see my doctor about getting hormone replacement therapy? And how do I know when I've reached that point? Mm hmm. Well, okay, so firstly, we can use bioidentical progesterone in the perimenopausal phase to help with symptoms. Um, topical can be nice, but oral is actually, we're going to get the metabolites. They're going to help with the anxiety. Like when you have progesterone, you love your family, you love your people like a lot more. And when you don't, you're like, why are they eating with their mouth open? Like, why can't they stop breathing? Like that kind of irritability happens. So I just, um, it's not normal to feel that way, but it is normal if you don't have enough progesterone going on. So we can use that in managing perimenopausal symptoms. So 
Um, we can go off symptoms. There's a lot of doctors who go off symptoms. We can also test about five to seven days after ovulation. But if you are in perimenopause and you're not ovulating regularly and you can't sleep, you can't, so you have difficulty falling asleep, staying asleep. You're finding that um, maybe you're feeling puffier, like you're having some food retention, you're feeling really irritable, you're having anxiety. Um, that's a time when we can use progesterone, bioidentical progesterone therapy, and that can be helpful. When it comes to like, when is it that I should start estrogen? So this is often like, let me, let me just breathe in to the fact that I, it does make me angry. Um, I'm going to name that emotion <laughs> right there is that when doctors are like, oh, your periods are irregular, like just have the pill. What? What? Like the pill was used, okay, the pill was developed for young populations who don't want to get pregnant. And it only was developed to be used for like three years spacing of pregnancy. Here we are like decades on end of using the pill. Um, and they will put women on the pill. You don't need more estrogen and you don't need more estrogen in that phase. Like you're, you're doing the estrogen thing. It's a progesterone issue that we often see arise in perimenopause. Then doctors act like, oh, just like take, um, you know, you just stay on the pill and that will help with menopause. Never. Okay. As a hormone doctor, I would never recommend oral estrogen. Never. The, you have to use a higher dose. The risks are much higher. Um, you're already somebody that's moving into a higher risk of cardiometabolic issues. Now I'm giving you oral estrogen. No, I don't think so. Like that's, that's a bad idea. Um, and it's because doctors are told like the pill is so safe and hormone replacement therapy is so dangerous. And I'm like, can you just please like read updated research because you're wrong. Like you're just absolutely wrong. Like, and um, so the time to be thinking about like going on estrogen therapy what so first like what is menopause everybody acts like menopause is this like long it, menopause is a day okay so you don't have a period for 12 consecutive months welcome to menopause tomorrow you are postmenopausal. that is the time that we want to like so that would be the time that i'd say get in conversation like when you're getting to that six to nine month mark with your doctor about what does it look like to go on hormone replacement therapy what labs do i need to get done for you to be comfortable with this um and be thinking about starting that therapy. Most providers are going to want to start you within five years of you going into menopause. That is really where we do see the benefit. And I talked about dementia. I talked about all these other things. There is newer research coming out showing that mortality, okay, mortality rates are like very, there's, it's a sad outlook once we lose our hormones. Even worse, if you have like a hysterectomy in your 30s and it's an oophorectomy, they take your ovaries and you don't get hormone replacement therapy. So if you lose your ovaries or your ovaries are losing the ability to produce hormones, that is a time to consider hormone replacement therapy. And when it comes to, well, what about like, you know, women start to get scared about like, what about, um, you know, estrogen and breast cancer? Remember, you're going to be doing your screening mammograms. Like that needs to be happening anyways. You should know your family history. So now is the time to start figuring out your family history. And remember things like broccoli sprouts. So getting a source of sulforaphane, dim coming in from your cruciferous vegetables, um, eating your, you know, eating a wide variety of plants is going to help you get magnesium. Honestly, you probably need to take magnesium because we all do, but um, getting magnesium in, making sure that you are taking in the nutrients that's going to help your liver properly run estrogen detox pathways 
Um, so we get healthier metabolites. So we want less of the four and 16 hydroxy. If you got, if you're into the nerdy stuff, there's a whole liver chapter and beyond the pill that like takes you through all of this. Um, I spared you in, is this normal? I was like, let me just give you the brief highlight, but like, here's what to do. We'll, we'll be less nerdy here for a second and other nerdy stuff to talk about, but we want to be more in that two hydroxy estrone. So we want to be protecting methylation. We want to be protecting our liver's ability to run. So like what is, was the number one thing like in protecting your liver, let's cut out alcohol. Um, if you want hot flashes, if you like hot flashes, if you like waking up drenched <laughs> in sweat, continue drinking by all means. Um, and that doesn't mean you can never have alcohol, but, um, you know, at drbrain.com, I have a whole article with research cited about what alcohol does to your hormones and it's not good and it's not fair. It's not fair. I'll just say that. Um, so there are lots of things that you can do lifestyle wise that you should be doing lifestyle wise, whether or not you choose hormone replacement therapy to lower your risk factors. And we know when we have those in place, again, let's go back to that sieve. We have plugged holes that is going to make it so that your body can really be optimized. Mm. And what about the difference between that's super helpful? What about the difference between estrogen patches and pellets? Yes. So I'm not a big fan of pellets. Um, it's, and then there's going to be some doctor in the comments that like, that's all they do. And they're just like, it's the best thing ever. And it's like, cool, maybe you find the right people for that. But I see a lot of patients that get pellets and they, it's just problematic for them. Like, especially, you know, getting that bolus um, of estrogen, there's patches, there are creams. I mean, th these days, I mean, even in like the last like 15 years, I've really seen a lot you know, a lot more accessibility to hormone replacement therapy. And most people's insurance is going to cover like getting a patch or getting an oral progesterone. It's a bioidentical like Prometrium um, and being able to take that orally. And so it's about what is fine. What, like, what are you going to be consistent with? What is the easiest thing for you? Um, and, you know, some people will choose pellets, but the thing about pellets is that it's really hard to dial in what your specific needs are and get it right the first time. So just understand that. And I would work with somebody who is trained in hormone replacement therapy and can talk you through your pros and cons. A lot of times I will say, not a lot of times, but I do come across doctors that all they do is pellets and they're very biased with pellets and they will only recommend pellets. And I'm like, how can you be meeting the individual at their level and really doing what's right by them if you are bringing this bias that like everybody should just use pellets like no matter what yeah something I've seen more used with the U.S. plants that I encounter actually the pellets rather than yeah. the UK it's interesting and with progesterone have you found some people don't tolerate it well so I will say that um Okay, one, you if you go too high in progesterone, you your breasts are probably gonna swell. Um, yeah, generally patients don't complain about the size, they complain about the tenderness. Um, you'll find that you're really groggy waking up in the morning. Um, so you wake up feeling super groggy and um you may cry a lot more. Those are some big signs with oral progesterone being too high. Um, there are compounding pharmacies where we can actually play with the dose and come down. Some people are much more sensitive. People who have a history of PMDD sometimes do not respond as well to progesterone therapy. Their brain is just different in how it utilizes progesterone. Um, 
And, and that's like very, uh, let me just say that's very preliminary research in what I'm citing there with that. And it's not always true across the board, but if you have a history of PMDD, which is, um, it's much, much more severe than PMS. So that's usually going to be like 10 plus days out of your cycle where you are having extreme physical and mental emotional symptoms going on. You want to convey that to your doctor. I've had patients where like 50 milligrams of oral progesterone, sweet spot. That's it. Do the standard like 200 milligrams that a lot of people take and no, they are crying. They're actually feeling more irritable. They're like, I'm, I'm feeling, you know, not completely within my body, within my mind. And that is not saying it's psychosis. It's just feeling like my emotions are in charge here and I can't stop crying. Mm. It's interesting what you're saying there about progesterone in perimenopause and estrogen around the time of or postmenopause, because I found like a lot of doctors here in the UK, they're always prescribing the two together. And it's while the women are still having periods in their forties. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I know yeah. Dr. Lara Bryden, she's also a fan of just progesterone therapy only. And I think it's, but is it, do you think it's down to awareness that more doctors just need to be educated on using it? So progesterone. Okay. So here's um, like progesterone is just kind of like an unsung hero in women's health. And the problem with progesterone is that it's used interchangeably with progestin, which is the synthetic stuff you find in the pill. And progestin doesn't have the same benefits um, for brain health that progesterone does have. Um, actually doesn't have the same benefits, like overall, as far as we know right now in the current research. And so doctors, because the pill, right, this is what they're trained in, they're like estrogen and progesterone always go together. Then there's the camp that's like, you only ever give progesterone when there's a uterus present. If there's no uterus present, then we don't even worry about it because estrogen is just so important. And estrogen is important. And yet so is progesterone. These are, you also often see, so if you want to tank your testosterone, let's put you on the pill. Okay. So the pill is going to shut down um, ovarian hormone production. This is how it's working. It's working at the brain level to shut down the brain talking to the ovaries. Now the ovaries aren't going to produce their hormones. You're not going to cycle. Therefore you will not ovulate. Yay. No baby. That's what we want. Right. Except you're also not going to make testosterone at the levels you need. And it's going to cause your liver to produce more sex hormone binding globulin, which is going to bind up your testosterone. Now we've got libido issues. Well, who, who cares, right? Women, women don't like sex anyways. Women don't have libidos anyways. Women are not interested in sex anyways, right? Thanks, purity culture, for invading medicine. No, that's not true. So now we've got low testosterone. That's problematic because what happens in perimenopause is we start seeing these metabolic shifts where women are gaining weight definitely starts happening postmenopausal. We need that testosterone to maintain our muscle mass. Muscle mass is a very, very important endocrine organ and is an organ of longevity. We want to build muscle mass because that's going to, that's going to help with bone mass as well. So testosterone is absolutely essential. You don't have enough testosterone. Well, you're going to feel unmotivated. You're going to find, you probably cry more. This is where hormones get their crossover and it gets complicated. Um, you're just going to find that you're a low energy. What does this start looking like? It starts looking like depression when it's actually a testosterone issue. So you're giving women in perimenopause and menopause the pill while you're giving them this estrogen, some progestin. You're also putting them at higher risk for some of the side effects of the pill and you're tanking their testosterone. Like 
what good are you doing here? You're really not. So in perimenopause, we want to be looking at like the progesterone. Is there a time and place for estrogen? Absolutely. It's very individualized. When do we know that like, I can speak generally that estrogen is going to be needed when those ovaries are done. That's when estrogen is going to be needed. And if you start having like hot flashes, vaginal dryness, like you start having issues, sometimes we'll use a topical estrogen or a topical DHEA vaginally, like on the vulva. Um, and that's to help the tissue and that can help mitigate the symptoms a little bit. So there's, there's a lot of like bioindividuality that happens here, but estrogen really, it's when the ovaries are done, we're going to need estrogen. And the problem with coming in now, if you come in with the pill, that's completely different. But if you come in with estrogen and then what happens, women start getting really heavy periods. Okay. We've done too much with estrogen now. And now doctors are like, Ooh, well, what do I usually use for that? Well, I can use the pill. I can do ablation. We might do a hysterectomy. Like that's when things can really start escalating. And so, you know, we didn't even talk about testosterone replacement therapy, but I think it's really important in women's health. And it is a very like testosterone is one of those ones we really have to dial in. I usually start low and slow and go up with it because if you go too high or your, um, your enzymes are upregulated, like inflammation can do that alone. And I actually, I talk all about this and is this normal in how that takes that testosterone into DHT. That is a form of testosterone that's going to make you lose the hair on your head. And you might start getting chin hairs, which also sucks, but not as bad as losing all of your hair and having hot flashes and feeling like you just like don't enjoy life anymore. Um, All of that compounded together. So testosterone, really, really important in women's health, super overlooked, same with progesterone. And your average doctor that you talk to, and I, I know this because I lecture at medical conferences and how often doctors come up to me afterwards and say, I never really understood the difference between progesterone and progestin. And I'm putting molecules up on a slide showing the difference. And they're like, I've been told it's the same. I was told in medical school is the same. I was told by the pharmaceutical rep who came into my office and told me to prescribe more of this, that it was the same. I've been told in computing medical education. And then this is the first time that I'm actually seeing that it's not the same. And I'm seeing the research that says it's not the same. Is it necessary in the pill? Yes, we have to have that there to oppose estrogen. And most doctors recognize that that's important. But the reason why it's progestin is not progesterone is you cannot patent a natural substance. And in the United States, one of the biggest things that we have is patents. (laughs) So progestin, it was actually made in Mexico in a lab in Mexico, and then it was brought into the pill formulations and that allowed them to patent these drugs. And so to understand that like, It wasn't put in there because it was like the best thing. It was the thing that allowed for a return on investment from the pharmaceutical companies who, for the first time in history, got to give a drug to somebody who never had a diagnosis. All they had to do was be born with a set of ovaries. Scary. So scary. When you're looking at this, when you're looking at this and you're testing women, I know you talk about the Dutch test actually in your book. I often look at that. You can see variances as well, though, when you compare the Dutch test to when you're looking at serum testing um, in terms of levels, like estradiol can look good on one and then not on the other. Can you just explain a bit about that and what you what you tend to use in terms of like prescribing those bioidenticals and what women should be talking to their doctor about in terms of testing? Yeah, so it's something that you'll find um, a lot of providers and even pharmacists, when you talk to them, they don't necessarily hang as much on testing as they do symptoms. And I think that is because we just, 
like serum testing hasn't always um, been the best in terms of catching this. Um, with the Dutch test, if you're on bioidentical progesterone, it's not really going to tell us much with that. And in fact, like we really have to go off symptoms with progesterone. Why I like to run the Dutch test is I want to see the metabolites. I want to mm. see what you're doing with your estrogen. And I think, um, so a lot of times, you know, the Dutch test is going to be that five to seven days after ovulation, what a, doc a lot of doctors say day 19 to 22 of your cycle. But as we talked before we even started recording is that not a lot of people are actually having 28 day cycles. So keep that in mind. It really needs to be five to seven days after ovulation. That is when your natural progesterone will be at its highest and that will be able to look at all of that. Um, but when it comes to the bioidenticals, like I said, the Dutch test isn't going to be where it's at for the progesterone. The metabolites, however, with estrogen are super, super helpful because if you are pushing everything into 16 hydroxyestrone, I know that your breasts are probably going to get lumpy and bumpy and swelling if, if we start giving you estrogen, if we're not addressing that pathway. If it's the 4-hydroxyestrone, we could have a problem with DNA damage. And if we have a problem with DNA damage, that equates to cancer in the future that's problematic. So we want to be looking at like, how can we come in? How can we intervene? The other thing I like about the Dutch channel, we haven't even talked about this, right? We've just been talking ovaries, 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 love them, like love the hormones from them. However, your adrenals are everything when you go into menopause. This is why I'm like sleep, lifestyle, diet, saying all of that, because, you know, I, I actually put, I talk about this pyramid so much and I put it in, is this normal? The foundation of your hormone period it, or your pyramid let me say my words right, is your adrenal glands and insulin. And if those two things are not right, we expect your thyroid hormone and your sex hormone, those are not going to be right either. And that is your foundation in healing your hormones for good. That is your foundation for having great hormones through your whole life. Once you are in menopause, the adrenal glands are going to produce DHEA. There's a big significant portion of our testosterone coming from our adrenal glands. DHEA can be make testosterone, but then it can also go into estrogen. So you're not done just because your ovaries are done. You're not done with all of your tissues making estrogen. I mean, we know like bone cells, fat cells, like they're going to make estrogen too. Um, but your adrenal glands, we really need to understand where stress is at because like I could be giving you bioidentical hormones and let's say I'm like, oh yeah, your anxiety is bad. And like you're having, um, you know, you're, you're having this night waking and all that stuff, but I'm not looking at your cortisol. I'm not looking at your cortisone. I'm not looking at your epinephrine, norepinephrine output. Like I need to see that because that's a big piece of the puzzle. I can't do that on serum. Um, you know, if I think you have Addison's disease, I'm going to be like, oh, which is like adrenal insufficiency. And that I'm going to be like, let's run, you know, all of these markers. But Otherwise, I can't really do this four point throughout the day. How are you looking? The Dutch now has the cortisol response. Like when you wake up, is your cortisol spiking the way it should? That pattern, especially if you're a mom or if you're an attorney, my God, the number of attorneys are your doctor. <laughs> or like there's just like that yeah. pattern tends to get thrown off. Okay. So like um, anyone who's gone through grad school, like you have a pattern of a college student for so long that you have been up at night studying and skimping on sleep and all that. If you are a mom, you have a baby that's like night wake, night wake. You're not supposed to sleep like that, baby. Like, come on. Um, well, the baby is, but I'm not supposed to, right? I say this as I now have a 17 month old. Um, 
And so with that, what we can see is that cortisol is not spiking in the morning and um, it's actually coming up in the evening. Well, maybe it's a progesterone issue or maybe it's actually your cortisol is an issue. Maybe it's a testosterone issue with energy in the morning. Maybe it's a cortisol issue or maybe it's a cortisol, thyroid and testosterone issue because spoiler, hormones are rarely just one thing. And so that's why I like to look at Dutch because I want to see the whole panel. Dutch doesn't do thyroid, so I'm going to have to do serum anyways. And it's not always economical for everybody to do a Dutch panel. So, you know, and it may be something that like their insurance isn't going to cover bioidentical. So I'm like, okay, what basis do we need to cover with serum work that we can get with that? And then we can do the best we can with meeting people where we're at. Because Honestly, like, like, I hate that finances have to be part of like dictating how we do medicine. And yet it's a very real reality of some things we have to consider that like this, this is just not economical for people to do a Dutch panel, get on bioidenticals, do all that. And people still deserve to feel amazing and live a really healthy and full life. Which is a shame when you think about it, when you're looking at those pathways, right? And you can see the 408 and if that could cause or is causing DNA damage and predisposing them to cancer. Think how much money you're saving further down the line mm-hmm. in terms of treating that patient. But and it's the same in the UK. It's not paid for. One question yeah. I had was on the 16-OH pathway, right? There's It's kind of like a Goldilocks effect, right? You want it to be within a certain range because it impacts yes. bone density. Absolutely. What, what, if, what happens when that is low? Because sometimes what I'll see on the Dutch is actually all the levels just look really low. You have to start looking at like, it's usually a question of supplementation, right? So people hear things like, like I just said, dim is helpful. Sephirophane is helpful. Where did I start though? I started with food. And I will say that I have a supplement line for women's health that I formulated, but I will always start with food first. And what I often find is that there's a supplementation issue where people are like, well, if a little's good, then more is better. And we have to start looking at like, what things are they taking? And also like, depending on the supplement company, what things are they thinking they're taking? But like, maybe isn't actually in there and is it something else um, that we have to look at like are they overdoing it um dim is one that like i don't recommend patients going over 100 milligrams and it is something that i'll say um i was shocked that i was getting people so i do a weekly ask dr brighton on um instagram and there were people who were like i take dim and now i'm having hot flashes I took DIM and I like got my period early. I took DIM and um, I, you know, had migraines or headaches. And I'm like, what is going on? I'm like, all right, where are y'all getting your DIM from? What's going on? Oh my God. Amazon selling like, you know, 500 plus milligrams. Like some of them saying like take two cups a day. Um, And really marketing, it's marketing more towards like the people who have estrogen positive cancer or um, the receptors are positive. And so, with that, um, people are just overdoing it. And they're like, yeah, I saw your supplement at 100 milligrams. And so I figured like, thousand must be better. And I'm like, you just tanked your estrogen. Like you just like, we're just like, um, it's like the I love Lucy and the chocolate factory conveyor belt. And they can't keep like the chocolate's just like going through, like you just pushed it right through and, and your body's like, wait a minute. I want that. Like I, I need some of that. Um, and so that is something that I often, that's one of the first places I will look when I start seeing, because you do want the right, and it, it, you're right. It's a Goldilocks effect. Like there needs to be a balance with that. Um, and so supplementation is like the first area I start to look at, like, are we overdoing it with something? And maybe you're not even overdoing it 
um, you know, like, like, it's like, oh, that's a standard. But for you, your body, your genetics, things that medicine doesn't even understand yet, it's too much. Hmm. And if they're not supplementing, would you worry about it or not so much if they're not actually so, using supplements? Yeah, if they're not supplementing, it's the kind of thing that I will. Con- so I usually will run a Dutch panel like six to 12 months later, and I will do a recheck and see like, are we st- is this problem persisting? Generally, it's not as we work on things. But um, I will say I think that is something that people don't do enough is they don't follow up and they monitor like what is actually going on there. Um, and we have to remember that labs are always one snapshot in time. So they're not always the full story of like the entirety of your life, right? So sometimes we will see a TSH, so thyroid stimulating hormone of like four. Like I don't like to see that above 2.5. I actually had a patient with this recently. And um, when I was like, well, what's going on? And they're just like, my, I've been supporting my friend, like her, her daughter just passed away. And I'm like, how close were you? Very close. Okay. Losing a child, losing a child's bullshit. Um, I just don't think it's fair and I don't think it's right in this world. And I think it takes a tremendous toll. And, um, she, you know, she was like, don't I need thyroid medication when this weren't thyroid medication? And I said, you know, had you not had this major stressor, I would be considering like, do we need thyroid medication? Um, I, and I told her, like, I would just like to support you, support your stress, support all of this, because what's being hit on this foundation is her adrenal glands right now. And so we went ahead and we retested in three months. We monitored her symptoms. So so everybody knows if I went with a medication, it's going to take six to eight weeks for the pituitary to adjust for me to know how that medication is being affected and that TSH to switch. So when you're looking at diet and lifestyle therapies, you want to be thinking the same thing is it's going to be about eight weeks, but like, does everybody just start everything like day one? No, it usually takes a couple of weeks to get into it. So three months is a good time to usually reevaluate. And when you reevaluated and her TSH was fine, everything looked great on her thyroid panel. And so that's just a lesson of just remembering that if you see a lab and things are off, we don't always have to react right away. Sometimes it's a matter of just going back to the basics, supporting the person and retesting. And again, being cautious that we're not jumping in with too many interventions because we don't want to, you know, we don't want to necessarily treat every little thing that we see on the lab we want to treat that person in their entirety. Does that make sense? Uh, totally. I always think you've got to treat the person, not the labs, right? Because as you say, they're yes. a snapshot in time. Um, yeah. You've been so generous with your time. I have a few questions from my community, if that's okay, before you go. I think you probably yeah. cover them in the book when it comes out. So one is around how do you guide college-age kids around the pill conversation? It's so easily around pill prescription because it's so easily prescribed for things like heavy bleeding and cramping. And, you know, yeah. a lot of teenagers maybe don't have an awareness of things like you feature in the book about how it can even damage your microbiome. It can cause inflammation. How would you have that conversation? You know, so there's the question of, are you sexually active? So this is sometimes, um, this is where like people ask me, like, is this normal? Did you like, this is like what sex ed teachers should say. Did you write this for teens? No, I did not. I wrote it for parents and I really encourage parents to be the the reliable source that their kids go to. And that's because sometimes kids will be telling their parents, you know, it's for my heavy periods. And really it's because they want to be sexually active. That's a different conversation, right? Because um, if you have, you know, your kid is going off to college and they're going to become sexually active, 
There's a lot of people who talk about fertility awareness method. It can be fantastic. But the thing is, is that um, we've got brains that are not fully formed yet. Um, they're not done developing. They're formed. They're just like not done developing. They haven't had a lot of enough life experience. And hormones are really, really good at overtaking the brain at times. And one of those times is around ovulation, where you're going to be a lot more in the mood. And so I just say that because... Can fertility awareness method work for a teen? Sure. Is it going to work for every teen? No. Um, and you really, I just see a lot of people talking about this. And I'm like, if we want, especially in the United States, when we've got Roe v. Wade and all of the issues, we just got a lot of issues here. Let me just say we got issues. Um, we really have to be aware of this conversation. So maybe the pill is the best thing for them. And we talk to them about hey, I want to make sure that you are on a multivitamin or prenatal so that we're protecting your nutrient stores. Because, you know, if you're in a dorm, maybe the dorm food's like not the best. Maybe we want to get them on a probiotic to support them and talk to them about ways to just, um, you know, really make sure that they're attending to their health. And then the big red flag, like things that you should go to your doctor about if you're having these issues. I and mean, even things like you have chronic yeast infection, if you're having pain with sex, like you should see your doctor about that because it could be a side effect of the pill. So there's that aspect. And there's also the options. So in chapter 13 of Beyond the Pill, I give all these options and pros and cons of birth control. Um, so there's IUDs. So you could do a copper IUD as, um, as an alternative. It can lead, so if you have endometriosis, not the best option for you, and it can lead to heavier, more painful periods. So something to be aware of. They're already heavy and painful. No, not for you. There's progestin-based IUDs. You're not going to get any estrogen from that. It is also not localized. That progestin will make its way throughout your body, okay? So, um, and then, you know, there's there's barrier methods. And that is a conversation that I think is not happening enough. It is so reflexive to be like, we don't want you to get pregnant. Oh, unintended pregnancy is the worst thing in the world. And it's like pelvic inflammatory disease and infertility. That's a subsequent um, issue from that. That sucks too. Um, and we have to talk about barrier methods. Like there's a you know, lot of cases of herpes. Um, there's a lot of cases of gonorrhea and chlamydia happening in colleges. And so we have to talk about barrier methods as well. Um, and so that's all like the contraceptive conversation when it comes to managing heavy periods, painful periods, things like that. There are options. I outline all those in Beyond the Pill. And that's a conversation to have at the individualized level. Some women do not have the bandwidth to be like, okay, I'm going to eat more omega-3 fatty acids or bring in an omega-3 fatty acid supplement and bring in like magnesium to help my periods get better. Um, maybe they just are like, I just need to take the pill and be done with it. Um, and as parents, as providers, we need to respect that as well. And so really, I think it's about presenting the options and then whatever is chosen, supporting that person in that. Um, and whatever that, that might look like for that individual, including if they choose to take the pill, make sure that you're supporting them and being successful with that. And knowing that if it doesn't work for them, there are other pill prescriptions, there are other ways to go about this, but they shouldn't just settle. Mm. It is a bit of an experiment, isn't it, with the pill? Like one, your friend may be taking the pill that works fine for her and then it doesn't for you. And yeah, it's got to try it. Um, thank you for that answer. The other question was around uh, a couple of was around how long after stopping birth control does it take for things to regulate and does the pill itself decrease progesterone over the months ahead? Well, progesterone is made so, when you ovulate, right? So mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So if you don't ovulate, you won't have progesterone and it can take some time for ovulation to resume and your periods to come back. So the whole time you're on the pill, that's not a period. You stop the pill. You're like, oh, I had a period. And now I haven't had a period for like three months. You've actually not have a, had a period this entire time. You've had a medication induced withdrawal bleed, right? That's why we give it with PCOS. We're like, we need to induce a bleed. That is, that is what we're doing here. Um, a period, a menstrual cycle period is following ovulation. So the whole time you're on the pill, you're not ovulating. And we don't have studies. We don't actually know what happens if we put you on this at like 12, 13, 14, and then you don't come off of it until like 44. We don't actually know. Um, you know, is there any interruption in the maturation process and the necessary communication cycle of the brain and the ovaries? Um, and so that's just important to understand because if you're coming off in the perimenopausal phase, also know that like you're very menopausal. So like you may not be getting a cycle back. Um, but most women, what we see, so if you have PCOS or you had irregular periods, we will see that usually within six months, um, the period comes back, um, with, uh, if you had a regular cycle, it can take three months, but at any point, if you hit that, you know, three or six month mark, you should go see your doctor and you should definitely get worked up. And if they say, just go back on the pill, that's not the answer. You're not ovulating. That's a problem. And they'll be like, who needs ovulation? It's not that big of a deal. And I'm like, <laughs> there's a lot of research to say it is the big deal. Um, but you know, just um, reducing women to just uh, baby making and saying, well, if you don't want a baby, then who cares? Um, that's, this is like a go-to move in medicine. So um, if you are coming off of birth control, I do have a guide um, at drbrighton.com slash PBCS diet. And that is just a guide to help you understand how to eat in a way and really um, set up a lifestyle so that you can start regularly cycling again and support your body. And you may still need medical intervention. And the good news is, is that if you do, you've already set a really good foundation with those practices. So you don't have to wait until that three to six months to do something, you can start doing something about it. Um, and then if it's your period still doesn't come back, you can see your provider about that. Because if it's PCOS, then it's going to take it's going to take more. If it's hypothyroidism, it may take a medication or something else, you know, coming in. Uh, so it's all it's a really important just to understand what is going on there so that you're addressing the correct issue. Amazing. Thank you so much. And we'll link to that guide in the in the show notes. I know your book, your new book is going to have all the answers that people need. Is this normal? It's coming out in April next year. Is that right? April. April. Yep, but you Amazing. can grab it now. <laughs> it's available for pre-sale. So people can go and pre-order it. Um, you also do your weekly lives. Please link uh, Dr. Jolene. Where can people come and find you, your content, interact with you? Uh, I know that they're going to want to connect with you after this. Yeah. So if you go to drbrayton.com, if you actually want to grab Is This Normal Now, we have a like quick start guide, basically getting into um, that 28 day program and starting to get results now in terms of your love life and your hormone health. Um, so drbrayton.com is my main hub. And then you can also find me on Instagram, TikTok and YouTube all at Dr. Jolene Brighton, Dr. Jolene well, I should spell that. That's not a, that's a different kind of name, right? So D-R-J-O-L-E-N-E -E, and then last name B-R-I-G-H-T-E-N. Um, and you can find me all over social sharing all kinds of information. And yes, we do the weekly Ask Dr. Brayton, which is where so much has been born out of. I'm like, in, is this normal? I'm like, 
okay, this is what I get asked all the time. And I get 15 seconds on Instagram to answer these questions. So now I'm going to just like dedicate a whole chapter into going into the deep dive on all of this. Fabulous. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been such a pleasure chatting to you. Yeah. And I hope to see you next year in London. In London. Indeed. I look forward to it. Thanks for listening. Remember to review and subscribe. You can grab the show notes, the resources and highlights of everything Angela mentioned over at AngelaFosterPerformance.com. You can also snatch up plenty of other goodies, including the highly helpful Angela Recommends page, which is a list of everything she personally recommends to optimize your mind, body and lifestyle.